Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. You're listening to a new The Hacker Factory podcast with hacker maker Philip Wiley. You're about to discover what the role of a professional hacker entails, the different specializations it holds, and what it takes to learn and become one. Enjoy the conversation as Philip and guests unveil the secrets of professional hacking, a mysterious, intriguing, and often misunderstood occupation. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Hacker Factory Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Wiley. And this episode, I'm happy to, to bring Christian Espinosa on to the episode. Christian does a lot of things for people trying trying to get started in cybersecurity and is a, a good role model and, and mentor in the industry. And recently, uh, a guest that you'll be listening to before this podcast, Josh Mason, uh, actually introduced us and thought maybe we could uh, collaborate. So uh, I'm happy to have you on the show, Christian. Thanks for joining. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Philip. Glad we're finally able to connect. Yeah, I've been following you and, and seeing all of your activities on on LinkedIn over the years. I know you're an author and a security professional and all sorts of other cool things. So uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, introducing yourself and kind of sharing your background with the listeners. I'll give a quick synopsis. Uh, <clears throat> I grew up in Arkansas. That's where I graduated high school. I went to the Air Force Academy. I applied to all the academies, but chose the Air Force Academy. And then I was in the uh, Air Force for about six years. And I did communications in the Air Force and did information assurance. Then became a defense contractor. So basically traded my uniform for civilian clothes and did sort of the same job. But I traveled around to different Air Force bases and optimized their networks and secured their networks as well. And then uh, I did a few different jobs between there. I worked for a commercial company for a while as a VP of uh, security products. And with that job, I did a lot of testing, penetration testing of commercial aircraft, which is pretty cool. Tested the planes on the ground and in the air to make sure they're, you know, hacker proof. And it was at that job that I decided I didn't want to work in a corporate environment anymore. So I quit and did freelance work. Did that for about six years. I taught CISSP, Security Plus, um, malware analysis, different classes all around the world and did pen testing. And then I started my own company, Alpine Security, in 2014. I sold that company in 2020 and I started a new company called Blue Goat Cyber uh, this year uh, in January 2023. Very cool. Interesting background. The, the plane pen testing must have been interesting. Yeah, that was uh, very interesting because we, we had to, in the lab, we had to do a lot of testing. So we had to replicate the systems and conform it exactly the way the plane is configured in a lab environment. And then we would go do a test on the plane while it was on the ground as well as what is in the air. So it was pretty cool to you know find the hidden Ethernet port, plug in while you're flying in the plane and try to try to hack in that way and things like that. <laughs> yeah, that, that could be kind of scary too. <laughs> it could be scary that the, the air, aircraft are supposed to have these separate domains. There's like the aircraft control domain, which is supposedly uh, air-gapped from all the other domains, which is like the uh, 
you know, the in-flight entertainment system is on a separate domain. But there are some links between those two because, uh, you know, you have feeds of uh, what the pilot sees, the altitude, the direction, things like that, that show up on the in-flight entertainment system. So, of course, there's some pathway there. Uh, and some of those pathways are supposed to be one way. So it, it's, um, you know, it's pretty secure. We weren't able, we weren't able to, like, hack into the engine and speed up the engine or alter the uh, control of the aircraft uh, anytime. Oh, that's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> that probably wouldn't be fine if, <laughs> if those things were true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, very cool. I didn't know that about you. So this is one of the cool things about the show is getting to to know some things about people. That's a very interesting, interesting background. So if someone is kind of starting out these days, what would you recommend a recommended path for someone that wants to get into cybersecurity? That's like an open-ended question. I, I think it's important uh, that someone understands really what sort of motivates them and drives them because in cybersecurity, we always hear like how to break into cybersecurity, but that's like, you know, it's it's a massive topic. So when you say break into cybersecurity, it's like what, you know, what is somebody going to be doing? Because they could be doing auditing, they could work at a stock, which is looking at logs a lot. They could do malware analysis. They could do forensics. They could do penetration testing. And all these require different skill sets. So I think it's important that somebody do something like uh, you can take a personality assessment, like 16personalities.com. It'll give you an idea of what you like and what you don't like and what your motivating um, motivators are and what your default behavior is. Uh, because... Things like penetration testing are drastically different than things like auditing or working in a SOC. And the personality types for those three are very different as well. An auditor is not going to be a great penetration tester and a penetration tester is not going to be a great auditor with rare exception. Uh, so a lot of people I think have been sort of brainwashed into thinking that the sexy thing to do is become a hacker, a white hat hacker and do penetration testing. And that may be the coolest sounding thing, but it's also one of the most challenging and frustrating things and requires immense persistence and constant learning. And a lot of people you know, don't want to go down that path. So I think it's important to look at the different jobs in cybersecurity, look at what you like to do based on some sort of assessment of yourself, and then make an informed decision on which career path you want to go. You can always learn the foundation with a certification like Security Plus, which is pretty good from a foundational perspective. But then after that, you have to figure out which direction you want to go. And there's lots of different directions. Yeah, that, you bring up some very good points. And one of the things that, that I'd like to see, and it's good that some other people are, are you know sharing this information, because you know a lot of people that want to get into security that have no idea about it, only know about pen testing, the hacking piece, and thinks that sounds, you know, really cool and James Bondish and all this and want to do that, but they don't realize sometimes that there's other areas that are really cool and maybe more fun. I mean, I have an example that I like to share of one of my former guests and former coworkers. Uh, we worked together at a bank and he was working in IT before I joined. Working in IT, he was taking some digital forensics courses and he had taken several of these. He was going through the Sands Institute. So this guy invested mm. a lot of money. I think his family kind of helped him out with his education as well. He's going with all these digital forensics courses and thought, maybe if I take the G-Pen and learn how to hack, maybe I could be better at digital forensics. 
And then he finds out that that's his true passion and what he loves to do. Mm. So he never went into digital forensics and went into pen testing. But a lot of cases, it could be the other way around. Someone's doing pen testing and realizes it's something they're not interested. Because, you know, some of the difficult things I find is you have to really be passionate about it, really want to enjoy it. Because like you mentioned, pen testing is not easy. Things like digital forensics are not easy. So maybe you want to take another path into security. But if you're really going to pursue those type of things, it really seems you have to be really passionate about it, really want to do it badly, or either just be really gifted and pick things up easily. Yeah, I've heard that uh, same story with a different theme, like someone tried to go into forensics and didn't like it, then tried pen testing and vice versa. So I think it's important you, like I said, you dip your toe in each of these areas. And there's plenty of free things you can try on the internet. You know, you can download VMs and try to hack into them. There's forensics challenges. There's different things you can do to kind of give you a, a sample of what each of these disciplines look like within cybersecurity before you jump right into it and try to just, you know, go all into something that you may not be that passionate about. And, and like you mentioned earlier, some of the things I think people overlook sometimes is like the auditing piece or GRC. Sometimes, well, a lot of cases, people in auditing aren't always that technical because mm-hmm. I worked, worked at a company as a red team lead several years ago. And in tandem, I was doing a AD pen test along with the auditors doing an audit of our Windows environment. And so it was really interesting to see what they didn't know. And, it, and it's understandable. It's a different set of skills, but you know, you, you bringing that up is a, is a good idea of someone, an area for someone to travel because those areas pay pretty good too, you know? Yeah. And that's a, that's a very good point. Like auditing, you need to know how to do an audit and how to substantiate, you know, the, the claims and all that and write the report, but you don't, you need to know the vernacular and the language, but you don't necessarily need to like have all the hands on keyboard knowledge that you would with a pen tester. So it's, and that's why I'm saying personality wise, those are two drastically different skill sets and they both, they both pay well, um, but they also pay as well as, you know, you are really like anything else. Yeah. And I think sometimes with the the pen testing jobs, people don't realize sometimes uh, the type of hours you have to keep because, you know, a lot of times (laughs) companies want you to test their networks off peak hours because they don't want you to impede production. That's a very good point because my company uh, does pen testing. My previous company did pen testing. And just like you mentioned, some clients are like, we don't want you to touch our systems during business hours just in case something happens. So we can only test between like 6 p.m. and 4 a.m. And then on the weekends. Uh, So it does. There's a lot of things about pen testing that aren't quite as sexy as they, they may seem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, I always used to dread it when I back in my consulting days when the engagement manager would be talking with the customer and said, well, do you need us to test after hours? So just in case we don't take anything down, and I'm thinking <laughs> you're, you're guiding them to say yes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so as far as uh, what are your opinions like on certifications and degrees, do you think those are needed to, to get into cybersecurity? Yeah, before we jump into that, I just wanted to say one more thing about pen testing. Sure, uh, we ahead, sort yeah. of focused a little bit on pen testing because I know yeah. both, both of us have back, a background in it. In it, mm-hmm. but even within pen testing, there are lots of different skill sets, and I think people don't don't understand that either. Like, there's the hands-on keyboard, the social engineering, you know, the physical security, and all those within themselves have a lot of different uh, nuances. And and again, at different personalities, like some of my best technical pen testers, web app pen testers, 
we're not the best as in-person social engineering. And some of the best in-person social engineering people are not the best at, uh, you know, web app pen testing. So it, it, it's important you understand like what you're getting into. And as far as certifications and degrees, I talk about this a fair amount in my book. Uh, I, I think some certifications, if there's a practical component, uh, there's some value to them. If it's a certification that's multiple choice, I there's I'm not saying there's not any value, but there's way less value because a lot of people can find brain dumps, they can find answers, they can just go over test banks, and they don't actually learn the material, they just learn to pass the test. Whereas if it's a practical test, you have to uh, have your hands on the keyboard and, and actually break into something or solve something, that requires you prove your skill set, not just a... Uh, some knowledge that you re- remembered. And with degrees, I think I think degrees are not really necessary in cybersecurity. I, I think we, we're, I'm hoping we're slowly kind of realizing that. We talk about the skills gap all the time. And I feel like the skills gap is, lar- is largely caused because we want to hire people with college degrees for cybersecurity. But if I'm a SOC analyst or a pen tester or an auditor or pretty much any job in cybersecurity, I don't understand where a degree really matters that much. Uh, and so you could argue that, well, I've got a degree in cybersecurity. Well, most of the degrees in cybersecurity are just theoretical. There's not a lot of hands-on with that either. Uh, and they vary drastically from reality, from my experience. I used to teach um, master's level and bachelor's level classes at a uh, university uh, in cybersecurity uh, as well. So I kind of have you know that experience. Uh, so it's, you know, we even though we don't need these things, uh, having a certification will help you get your foot in the door. Uh, and a lot of people will say, well, I don't have the experience. Uh, when I hired people, I looked for more than just their degree. I didn't care if they had a degree, really. Uh, I didn't even care if they had a certification. What I looked for was their hunger. Like, were they hungry about getting into the career field or if they had experience do they have a good track record and, and not a, like a attitude, a, a know-it-all attitude? So I, I looked at people that were were hungry and, and, and met my values and and could get along with my team. Really, that was like the number one thing. And then I was willing to pay for them to get a certification. But it also helped that they brought to the table like I'm studying Security Plus. Here's X, Y, Z, all the things I've done. I built this whole VM, virtual machine lab, on my computer. I'm doing all these things to learn it. If they demonstrated that to me on their own, uh, that I valued over a college degree because that's like a self-starter and someone that's educated, interested in self-education. Yeah, those are some good points. I mean, one of the things that helped me land my first pen testing job, I had the security background, had run some vulnerability scanners, but whenever the hiring manager found out that I had a home lab and that I did a lot of self-study, that kind of really helped me get the job. So that's, that's a great point to bring up. So what are some other things that you would recommend for someone? Because I know one of the things you've got a really strong brand, see you out there, your books, see you're doing webinars and speaking and all this. And in current years, I've seen people that have really put emphasis on branding and it seemed to really help their, their uh, job uh, possibilities. Yeah, I I think uh, branding is, it's not for everybody. It depends on what your career objectives are. Uh, but I certainly help, don't think branding is a bad idea, like having your own personal brand. 
Uh, because then if you build up your personal brand, you can take that wherever you go. You're not sort of tied to a company. And if you build up a network, because uh, some people say your network is your net worth, if you build up a decent network uh, and they all know you versus you as just somebody that works for another company, then that's something you can leverage in the future as well. Uh, you know, I have my own website, I got my own company and they're separate, but they're sort of you know tied together because I am part of both of them. Other things I think people can do is really uh, is network. I, I know on LinkedIn, there's plenty of people that are offering like free courses on, um, you know, malware analysis, uh, cybersecurity career paths, uh, you know, what it's like to be a SOC analyst. There's plenty of free resources out there that if you meet the right people, take the right actions, uh, put your shyness away and get out there, uh, you can really learn a lot about the industry as well as meet people that can help you find a job. Because I think one of the best ways to find a job is through your network versus just you know filling out a resume and sending it or sending your resume to an HR representative at some large company. And I, th- I think most people that I talk to, uh, at least recently, have gotten their next job through their network, the people they know. Yeah, that that's a good point because sometimes it can be difficult to to go online, do the traditional way of submitting your resume to some online application database, and then you know whether you hear back. Sometimes you know you may not. I've I've applied for jobs that were identical roles at two different banks. One was from a referral. And the other one I didn't hear from until like a year later, someone reached out to me about an open role and I was very qualified for either one. But whenever I had someone at a local OWASP chapter meetup, Mm -hmm. take my resume into the hiring manager, you know, I got like interview right away and ended up getting that job. So that kind of demonstrates the difference because just trying to get through those algorithms and you don't know what keywords they're looking at for sure, because Sometimes when people write job descriptions, HR doesn't always write them correctly or maybe even the hiring manager, and it makes it difficult to find people sometimes. Yeah, and getting that job through your OWASP uh, local chapter uh, is is exactly what I'm talking about, that networking component. It doesn't have to be virtual either. You did it physically, it sounds like. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I'm a big fan of the OWASP top 10 for, they have a top 10 for pretty much every type of security yeah, yeah, they do. They get they're pretty good at staying on top of all the new technologies and stuff because they've got something for the uh, for IoT and and now APIs and and mobile and stuff. So, so what are some you know speaking of groups and networking? What are some groups that you that you you're a fan of or recommend people joining to to get these networking opportunities? Well, OWASP is one of them. I'm a big fan of OWASP. I follow the top ten. Uh, for pretty much all of our pen tests, we make sure we cover the top 10 at a minimum. Uh, another group is ISC Squared. Uh, that's uh, they, do, they do the CISSP and a few other certifications. They have chapters in pretty much every large metropolitan area. I know in, um, I think it's in May, I'm going to be speaking at the LA chapter of ISC Squared. I used to go to uh, one in St. Louis periodically when I was living there, that their, their meetings. There's also local uh, meetup groups. I knew I know when I was living in St. Louis, there was a local cyber meetup group that met once a month and they had a, a presenter, a little uh, social hour before and a little bit of time afterwards 
where they had bring bring in food and things like that and had a sponsor. So those are there's plenty of ways and groups out there. Those are just a few that I've I've looked at. I'm sure there's quite a few more, um, but those are the ones I've I've paid attention to. Very cool. Yeah, meetup.com is a good place for people to find those two for, for anyone listening. Uh, kind of when I was before I got into when I got into before I got into speaking, I actually found used uh, meetup.com to find a Toastmasters group in my area. And I found a lot of different security groups. So those are good options there. Yeah, you can find a group on just about anything on meetup.com. Uh, and, and you can always start your own group too. You know, you can start your own cybersecurity, uh, you know, uh, rookie group or whatever you want to call it. You can start your own group in your, in, in your city and people will show up. Yeah, that's that's a very good point because it's it's pretty interesting. The benefits the benefits to going to meetups are really great, but have you know started some myself and seeing what it did for other people before I started myself. I mean, it's a good way to accelerate your your network. So because you're running these meetups, people are coming to you. They know you from running the meetups, so those are great ways to do that. So just what do you as far as like any kind of groups? You know, since we're on the the subject of networking. Are there any types of groups or anything you'd recommend outside of security, maybe different IT groups or business groups that would be valuable to, to network in? I'm a big fan uh, of joining other industry groups uh, because like, in, for instance, healthcare. Healthcare is an industry in, in itself, and we do a lot of cybersecurity for healthcare. But if you're looking for a job or you're looking for business, Rather than go to a cybersecurity conference, which is full of cybersecurity people, I think it makes sense to go to an industry group, such as a healthcare, uh, like a HIMSS meeting. Uh, that's another networking uh, meeting, a uh, Health Information Management System Society, I think it stands for. They have those in pretty much every city. You can go there and it's healthcare focused, but chances are somebody in, in that industry needs cybersecurity help. Uh, so... That's, you know, what I've done that in the past. I've gone to HIMSS meetings, uh, which are healthcare focused, but you're not, you know, you're not surrounded by cybersecurity people. So the, the minute they know, think you know cybersecurity, they're going to start asking you questions and maybe refer you to somebody else and opportunities will open up that way as well. Yeah, that's a good point too, because if you're at a, at a conference or a security meetup and some of them will do a who's hiring and who's look, looking section of the meeting, but if you go to some other industry group, there's going to be a lot less security people to be competing for, <laughs> for any of those open jobs. Exactly. <laughs> Plus there's something to be said about being the security expert in a room. You know, you start, if you ever want to do consulting or any kind of side work, in a lot of cases, these people will come to you because you might be the only security person they know or one of the few that they know. That's right. And uh, what's interesting, like I've presented at HIMSS meetings before, and it's mainly healthcare professionals, uh, some doctors. And the the presentation I gave there has to be very different than a presentation I would give at a cybersecurity event because they don't understand most of the things cybersecurity people inherently understand. Uh, so you really are the expert and you have to speak in a way that they can comprehend. When you say multi-factor authentication, they, they may not know what you're talking about, but cybersecurity people know what you're talking about. So you have to keep in mind your audience uh, when you're in those environments, but it really helps 
elevate your status as an expert as well, as long as you can communicate effectively. Yeah, that's a good point. When you, you're not limiting yourself to such a small set group, you're, you're expanding that. And plus, like you mentioned, you know, getting the skills, speaking to those different crowds, because even when you go back to you, you get a job or you're working somewhere and you need to talk to management or one of the different business groups, if you understand how to explain that better, that's going to go a long way. Because I think from what I've seen in the industry, sometimes you can have some very technical people, but their soft skills and communication skills are not always great. <laughs> uh, that's what I've seen as well. That's why I wrote uh, my book, The Smartest Person in the Room, is to try to to try to bring some of that emotional intelligence and people skills back to the already like super high IQ or super rationally intelligent people in cybersecurity. Because I think a lot of people, and, and you kind of hit it on the head, Philip, I think a lot of people are held down by this glass ceiling because of their communication skills or their people skills, and they don't realize it. That's why it's called a glass ceiling. So if you can get that experience talking to other industry groups and explaining cybersecurity, uh, then that helps you become a better communicator. And it, a lot of people think communication is just something you, you're good at or you're not, but it's like anything else you have to practice. Just like if you're going to be a good pen tester, you have to practice pen testing. If you want to be a good communicator, you have to practice communication. If you want to be good with people, you have to practice interacting with people as well. It's not like you just have this switch, like you're good with people or you're not good with people. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, that, that's a very good point too, because I was terrified to speak in public before I went to Toastmasters and wanting to speak at conferences kind of drove that desire to speak. And even writing speeches and communicating, collecting your thoughts, it's, it takes practice, you know, because something that makes sense to you may not to others, but when you're presenting to other people and you finally get it down to where you can communicate to these crowds that don't understand that certain technology or just be able to make things more simplified, even for people in your industry, the better you can communicate those, the, the better off it is. Exactly. I, in my book, I talk about, uh, I have a seven step methodology and the step four is communication. And I, I mention a little bit about NLP, neurolinguistic programming. And one of the presuppositions is that the meaning of communication is the response you get. So if you're communicating with someone and you're not they're not understanding or responding how you would like them to, then the ownership shifts back on you to change how you communicate. And a lot of us in cybersecurity will just blame the other person and say, well, they just don't get it. They just don't understand. You know, the board doesn't understand the risk, but it's really like we didn't explain it right. Otherwise they would get it and they would understand. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely good because you know, it's, it's kind of on you if you can't explain it well enough because you're going to, to you know, kind of reiterating some of the things we said, you know, not everyone's going to be at the same level. I've had managers before in the past that it was really tough to get them to understand the concepts, but really, I think people really ought to strive to get to that level. Cause once you, once you do, it's just kind of, you're lifting the limitations you have. And one of the things, if you really don't try it could be frustrating for the listener if you're not really able to explain it well. They come back wanting clarification. You're not able to clarify it. I kind of ran into this, you know, earlier in my security career and had to to work on that. But once I got that down, that just kind of really eliminated a lot of frustration for me and then whoever I'm communicating with. 
Yeah, it's a it's a essential skill, and I think communication will help you with anything you do in life. Uh, it's one of those skills that I, I I call like a a skill with an infinite shelf life, unlike a technical skill which has like a finite t- shelf life because the technology you're using is going to change, but something like communication will serve you for the rest of your life, especially if you could get really good at it. And and in cybersecurity, one of the constant complaints I hear is. Uh, we didn't get we didn't get the budget we asked for, and from my experience, the main reason the budget is not uh, given is because the risk was not communicated well enough in terms of how it affects the business. It was communicated in too much technical jargon, too much cybersecurity focus versus you know business focus because cybersecurity is a support industry designed to support the business. And some cybersecurity people think that they forget that they think only from the perspective of cybersecurity. But if there was not a business, there would be no cybersecurity. So it's just a support industry. Very good points there. And you know, you mentioned being an author. Uh, How did you kind of get into being an author? Was that something that you always wanted to do? What kind of motivated you to write books? Um. It's something I've always thought about doing, but we always think about stuff and rarely do it. Uh, so I went to this, um, in 2019, I went to this Genius Network event. It's an event for entrepreneurs and, and kind of a personal development event. Uh, Joe Polish runs the event. And I noticed that most of the people there that were pretty successful had written a book. And I thought, huh, I've got a lot of stuff I want to say. So I talked to different people there about how to write a book and all that. And I committed to it and decided to write it on my experience with my cybersecurity company, uh, which a lot, you know, I, I grew a company successfully. A lot of the challenges I had though were because my staff didn't have those people skills or that emotional intelligence. They had the technical aptitude, but they would talk over a client's head, not make the client feel understood, not make them feel appreciated. Uh, and the, every now and then the client would get frustrated and talk to me like, you know, I didn't understand a word your engineer said and they would understand me. So I wrote a book about that and what I did in my company to fix that uh, along with the culture. And um, yeah, I'm working on my second book now. It should be done around April timeframe. I'm still revising it right now, which is according to my writing process, like the longest part. So how, how was it when you, when you decided to write a book, was it, more difficult or less difficult than you expected? Uh, it was more difficult than I expected. Uh, I am full of ideas. I have lots of ideas. So I think, oh, a book should be easy. But it's a matter of organize, organizing those ideas uh, in a way that other people can understand them and having a common thread in the book or North Star, people like to say. So your book's not all over the place. And then speaking to a specific audience. Uh, so it's really... I threw all the ideas down, and then, I, like I said, I spent a lot of time revising everything and making sure it is as best I could. You're on, you're on a deadline as well, making sure it, it made sense to someone that uh, is not me because I wrote, I wrote it. And after you've re- re- read your book like 50 times, you get tired of reading it. And you almost want to just give up and publish it the way it is. But uh, you know, sometimes it takes one more read to catch some mistakes or add some more clarity. Yeah, it was it was very challenging. And then after you publish the book, I I didn't use a traditional publisher. I used someone to help me publish the book, but it's pretty much self-published. So writing the book was a big lift, 
But then after that, you have to market the book, which almost took more work. I'm still marketing the book uh, because you have to get reviews on Amazon. You have to get on podcasts. You have to uh, get people to want to write a review about your book on, on their website. You know, so it's a lot of work to get your book out there, especially when you're starting out, because it's not like, a, you know, I have a big following of, of, of people that are just waiting for my next book to come out. Maybe I have a little bit of following now. My next book will launch a little bit better. I'm hoping so. Um, but I still expect to do a lot of work on that as well. Yeah, no, for me, it was it was a bigger commitment than I really realized before I got into it. You just kind of once you kind of get into it and and trying to get that page count and get enough pages in the book, you know, so forth was could be was kind of a challenge for me. Yeah, it's it, it seems like a simple undertaking, but it's 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 a challenge. Now, my book was 280 pages, uh, which was about 60,000 words, almost 60,000. Uh, my target was 50,000, but I. I wanted to add some exercises and other things to um, make it a little more tangible, which which up the word count. Well, we're getting down towards the end of the show. Is there any advice that you'd like to share before we end the episode? I think if you're starting in cybersecurity, if you can find a mentor, uh, that's the advice I would give. Uh, it's it, it's it's kind of hard to go at it alone when you don't know the industry, you don't know the people, you don't know the different options in the industry. So there are a lot of people out there that are willing to mentor somebody. I've mentored quite a few people in the past. Uh, so if you can find a mentor and on LinkedIn, I think there's a lot of resources to help you find a mentor as well. I think that would be something I would recommend also. Very good advice. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to join. It was an honor to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Philip. I appreciate it. Well, thanks everyone for joining and we'll see you on the next episode. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hacker Factory podcast with Philip Wiley. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share ITSBmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey. You can always find us at the intersection of technology, cybersecurity, and society.